Good afternoon. Welcome to lecture 18, which promises to be on the topic of the link between gold and interest, a most formidable and uh, controversial subject. Thank you for attending, and the word is with Sandeep. Thanks, Peter. Um, so, I don't envisage this lecture being very long because we will be going through concepts that we've already gone through in previous lectures. So I envisage this more as a sort of summary, summary kind of lecture. A um, lot of confusion about uh, how gold involves itself in the financial system. Um, and the most important thing to remember from this school is that gold is the uh, regulator or the medium by which the interest rate is regulated, the rate of interest. That is the most important function of gold, is to maintain a mechanism for the, uh, for the interest rate to move in a homeostatic process. Which was missed by Mises. And... <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Amongst many well, things. Sorry, that was the title of the course. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was, as Professor said, that was missed uh, by Mises. And um, we'll go through exactly how gold um, is involved in the setting of interest rates again. Um, but it's just worth remembering that this is an extension of Menger's observations. Professor is just continuing uh, Menger's observations on the difference between the bid and the offer in a market. And Menger, as Professor has said before, was a very, very busy man and he didn't have time to complete his theory of interest. But uh, he had all of the the building blocks right there, and I'm sure that if he had more time, he would have done it in the way that Professor Feketer has. Okay? Sandy, could mm. you repeat the definition you just gave of gold? I thought it was quite interesting, and I was writing it down. Its role is uh, to, uh, to maintain an orderly rate of interest, basically. Yeah, but that but you, the way you expressed it was, uh, is the regulator. Right. I can't remember exactly what I said on the video. I'm going to take months before I can see it again. Is the regulator of the mechanism which determines interest rates? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's the object which is used to, as in the, in, in the stabilization of interest rates, I suppose. Um, I'll go through that in, in a lot more detail. Um, so, again, there is this philosophical disagreement as to the nature, the nature of interest. And um, all it is, is effectively making a more efficient way of changing wealth into income and income into wealth. You know, this is a process that is a function of um, our existence on the planet. We're young, 
we grow older and then uh, we leave the planet. And we have different needs as we go on that journey. And as you're younger, you tend to, uh, tend to want capital ahead of income. And as you get older, that tends to reverse and you tend to require an income ahead of capital. So it's this interplay that is the, uh, the, the, the cause, the cause for the rate of interest. Um, so let's go through again how exactly you get gold involved in the rate of interest. Okay, so we talked previously about how, uh, and this is all recapping, by the way, but it's worth recapping it because it shows how, how wrong Mises was, I suppose. Um, you don't start with just one end or an assumption. And Mises' assumption with time preference, uh, which uh, are not in these lecture notes, but um, probably in the previous set of lecture notes. It's just a very garbled expression that he gave. He used the, the method of averages. Uh, he assumed that time preference is uniform for each individual. And um, somehow it just averages out into an originary rate of uh, interest. Now, I'm not, I'm not particularly fussed about someone making a mistake. We all make mistakes. Uh, but that was quite a, quite a big mistake, I think, for someone of Mises' erudition. So, starting off from completely the wrong, completely the wrong concepts, you should start off by saying, if you do think it is a market process, how do you relate it to a particular market? Don't just say it is a market process. A market to me is an object that has a bid and offer, always. And um, of course, one end might be hidden or implicit, but you always have a spread. So that was his first, his first error. And, um, to overlook it is quite, uh, quite major, in my view. It's not, an, it's not a particularly complicated observation of Karl Menger. Um, and to just ignore it is an error, basically. Um, so here we go. We have the interest rate spread, and we have the offered rate of interest here, and the bid rate of interest here. And Which is referred to referring to the time preference. I'll, I'm just about oh, to you are to coming. Yeah. So if you want to borrow money, if you want to borrow money, let's say this is four percent and this is five percent. If you want to borrow money for a generic endeavor, uh, and you want it straight away, and you satisfy all the requirements, it's not less like buying a stock, then you'll have to pay 5%. Um, and if you want to lend money for this particular duration without haggling, you'll get, you'll get 4%. Okay? And the way that gold and time 
works its way into it is in the bid rate of interest. Okay? So, the rate of interest is bid lower by people wishing to uh, lend money for this particular time frame. And in this exchange, okay, you are exchanging gold coin for bonds. Okay? You are uh, lending money, so you're exchanging gold coin for bonds. And eventually this rate will be brought down such that the reluctance of the marginal bondholder related to his marginal time preference says that that is enough. Okay? So time, marginal time preference, feeds itself in via the bid rate of interest. And from the seesaw, the bid rate of interest is to do with the asked price of the bond. Okay, very simple. So, Here we have marginal time preference making it safe. And the exchange, I don't like using buying and selling, it's exchange. Exchange of gold coin. Bonds. Okay, so remember that process, arbitrage being arbitraged lower and lower and lower until the marginal bondholders, marginal time preference uh, kicks in and that puts a flaw, as it were. Now, the other side of that is, uh, does anyone remember what it is? You've got marginal time preference on the bid, and what on the offer? Marginal productivity of, of capital. Okay, and this is the arbitrage between the capital goods market and you can call it a stock market, and the bond market. So here you have marginal productivity of capital. So, 
in a similar in a similar fashion, we just invert what we were doing for marginal time preference, except we refer to a different arbitrage this time, and that arbitrage is related to the return on the bond or the cost to the issuer of the bond and the return on the capital markets, which you can approximate by the stock market. But don't confuse the stock market for the company that it represents. There are loads of different arbitrages you can actually do amongst that whole set. Okay, so what happens is that someone comes in and says, right, I see an enterprise and they bid up the rate of uh, offered interest from, let's say, five, five and a half, six, until the reluctance of the marginal entrepreneur kicks in. The marginal entrepreneur, the entrepreneur is the one who is doing arbitrage between the bond and the stock market. And the marginal entrepreneur's um, action kicks in. Marginal productivity of capital is the basis of that. And the, bid, the offered rate of interest stops, let's say, here. Okay. And you must remember that this isn't in isolation. Okay. This is with reference to a stock market return. You mean like a, a yield? Yeah, net yield though, not dividend yield. Net yield. So, I don't know, let's say there was a company that had a market net earnings yield of 10%. So in the process of bringing up the offered rate of interest, he's bringing down the, uh, the, the net yield of something at the same time. So this would be 9.5%. And it's the difference that you have to think about. When that difference reaches a certain, a certain level that is deemed insufficient for the next person to do it, then that's the level that it stays at, basically. So, um, two completely different processes determining the, uh, the rate of interest. Uh, you've got marginal time preference on the bid, marginal productivity of capital on the offer, time and space, yet both of them complete the theory of interest. You can't have one without the other. The, uh, in, in the whole um, process of the marginal time preference operating on the bid, mm. what the actual exchange there that takes place when there is an exchange is an exchange between coin and bond. Mm. What is the exchange on the offer? This is between bond and stock. So it's 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 okay, it's more. Okay. It doesn't involve gold directly. Right, it's more like um, okay. Try to 
Yeah. An exchange of capital. Well, this is, the, this is the whole thing that I'm trying to explain to people. I, I'm a fund manager, and apart from I manage a gold fund, I have to manage equities as well. And if you look at this spread, if you just take, I don't know, the 10 largest blue chips of fast-moving consumer good companies or something, the net yield, not dividend yield, but net yield is about 8 or 9%. And the offered rate of interest for these companies is 1.5%. And that's that vertical spread, this is called the vertical spread, we know that already, though, uh, is at its highest in, like, generations. What do you mean by net yield is including the capital gain? Is that what you mean? No, as in net earnings, not just dividend payments. Ah, okay, yeah. including the retained earnings. Yeah, including the retained earnings. It, it shows you have missed this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Okay. Sandy, you... <coughs> It, it, this flow of funds from bonds to start, it goes through gold. Clearly, one is sold and the other is bought. But when it goes from bonds to gold, it kind of sits there, unless there's another opportunity to be reinvested. Yeah. And uh, if you hold the gold and you look around and you see that you can make 10% net in stocks and 5% in bonds, well, you put your gold there. And if once that thing spread comes down, you're going to go the other way. You'll go another way. And when you're selling the stocks, you're actually reducing the uh, capital productivity of the, uh, mm. of the uh, economy. So presumably, you're actually going to be increasing, the, whatever is out there is going to increase in value. You're going to earn more money because the well, yeah, competition I mean, is shrinking. So I'm just talking very I know, I understand. But just but yeah, yeah. not only uh, limiting the interest, but you're also restoring balance by increasing the productivity of that capital. Right? Well, exactly, exactly. There is, there is, uh, this, this works, I hate saying this phrase, but it does work like magic. <laughs> and um, you, can't, uh, you can't put marvel in its beauty. Um, yeah, so on that subject, you know, the, the, the vertical spread is at its widest in 50 years. <coughs> and it's beginning to contract. And as more people, more companies realize that they can actually get, they can get this difference in their pocket in cash. One of my friends who's a currency manager said, oh, it's like they can carry equities then, I suppose, for the profit. And I said, yes, carrying equities by issuing your own debt or carrying someone else's equities, not even your own. Okay, so this is my reason for an escalation in the stock market volumes and, uh, sorry, mergers and acquisitions volumes going through the roof. It's already kicking up quite a bit now. It's all in the contraction of this vertical spread as they race over each other to, to, to capture that spread. They're not even thinking like that yet, okay, but they will very quickly and the market as you're contracting this spread, obviously the bid price of market equity goes up sharply. Sandy, hmm. uh, borrowing a leaf out of the book of Mises, we could say that the uh, marginal time preference on the one hand and the marginal productivity of capital on the other are the two blades of the scissor 
Yes. There yeah. is no market unless both blades are present. And the action takes place at the marginal rate. Mm -hmm. This is where the action is. This is where we, where, uh, we have to concentrate. Yeah. So yeah. I think the, he had <laughs> the scissor is a very good uh, yes. mental image of yes. what's going on. Not just in here, but wherever you use the principle of marginalism. I think so, because it, you should, if you want to remember the basic tenets, you should think of a pair of scissors and one pair of hands making handkerchiefs. And you should think, well, if that is the defined context of that system, how will adding an extra pair of hands change output? How will adding an extra pair of scissors change output? That's the most simple example that you can do. And obviously, you, the real life is just a, a variation on that, basically. Um, so this is an important point to remember. You can't have one blade of the scissor and have it um, and have it functioning. Um, so there's there's not much to uh, to add on top of this apart from we have to think in terms of marginality at all times and. What I am actually developing and will be publishing quite soon is uh, marginal liquidity preference and the explanation for the shape of the yield curve, um, which is, has a bit of uh, a, is a discussion issue amongst here. Is it flat? Is it meant to be sloping up slightly? And um, is the flat curve stable? Is the flat curve stable? And just to give you a hint as to how I'll be tackling this, well, I've already tackled it, but uh, there's no such thing as a monolithic yield curve. There's a bid rate and an offered rate, and you have to use that as your starting point in the analysis, and you can come up with some very interesting observations just based on subjective, um, subjective preference. Based on, based on postulates like you would rather have your gold back, you would rather have your one ounce of gold back more quickly than not more quickly, which I think is a fair enough postulate. It's completely mental, as in not irrational, but it's completely a mental faculty to say that you want your gold back more quickly than not. And the other side of it is, well, if you're borrowing money, um, all other things being equal, you'd want to borrow it for as long as possible. And it's that uh, dichotomy uh, and the, the coordination of that dichotomy that um, I think brings out the shape of the yield curve. So we go from uh, marginal time preference Remember, this was all for just one particular maturity of bond. Okay, you've got all of the other maturities of bonds out here in another, in another axis. So, this is the next area of investigation. We've done marginal time preference. 
ticks. We've done marginal productivity of capital. And now we go into the 3D for, marg uh, for marginal liquidity preference. And that will be released next week at some point. So um, I think that we'll call it uh, an end for that lecture and bring up any questions that anyone might have or if Professor